Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Oh, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine? Oh, fairly well. Good. This time we're looking at the 31st Annual Academy Awards covering films released in 1958 and the Best Picture winner of that year, Gigi, directed by Vincent Minnelli. The film was released on May 15, 1958 and featured Leslie Caron as Gigi, Louis Jordan as Gaston Lachelle, and Maurice Chevalier as Henri Lachelle. The film's screenplay was written by Alan J. Lerner, based off of the French novella. I have the synopsis today, provided as always by Wikipedia. And in case our listeners haven't noticed, I am not a natural nor fluent speaker of French, so apologies in advance for any proper names that I mispronounce. During the Belle Epoque at the turn of the 20th century, Henri Lachal remarks while in Bois de Boulogne that in Paris, marriage is not the only option for wealthy young bon vaunts like his nephew Gaston, who's bored with life. The one thing Gaston truly enjoys is spending time with Madame Alvarez, and especially her granddaughter, the precocious Carefree Gilbert, affectionately known as Gigi. Following the family tradition, Madame Alvarez sends Gigi to her great-aunt Alicia to be groomed as a courtesan a dignified word for a mistress of a wealthy man, to learn etiquette and charm. Gigi disdains the trivial love that a man and his mistress share, and has the most fun with Gaston, whom she regards as an older brother. Like his uncle, Gaston is known as a wealthy womanizer in Parisian high society. His latest mistress has an affair with her ice skating instructor, and Gaston publicly humiliates her, resulting in her attempt to suicide. Gaston plans to retreat to the country, but his uncle insists he stay in Paris and get and attend even more parties. Later, during a card game with Gaston, Gigi wagers that if he loses, he must take her grandmother and her to the seaside with him for the weekend. Gaston agrees, loses the bet, and the three travel to Travel. Gaston and Gigi have fun together, while Henri and Madame Alvarez reminisce about their once passionate affair. As other women at the resort hold perfect poise and give off an air of boredom or disdain for anything unfamiliar, Gigi pulls Gaston out of his depressive rut with her carefree attitude. Once Gigi and her grandmother return to Paris, Gaston goes to Monte Carlo. During this time, Gigi's aunt and grandmother plan on Gigi becoming Gaston's mistress. Though dubious at first, Madame Alvarez agrees to let Gigi intensively train to prepare for Gaston's return. Gigi accepts this as a necessary evil. When Gaston returns, he is discomfited when Gigi appears in her new adult dress. He tells her that he misses her former juvenile wardrobe 
and that her lacy dress color makes her look like a giraffe. Gigi, in turn, questions Gaston's taste in clothes. Feeling insulted, he storms out and quickly realizes his folly and rushes back to apologize. He tells Gigi that she looks lovely and says that he will prove it to her by taking her to the tea at the reservoir. Gigi's grandmother interjects, informing Gaston that it may ruin her reputation to be seen in public, unchaperoned with him before her reputation has even begun. Angered, Gaston storms out again. Gaston walks and reflects on Gigi, concluding that he has developed a romantic desire for her. Although he hesitates because of their age difference, Gaston realizes that he loves Gigi more than he thought and desires only to be near her. Unheard of behavior between a man and his mistress. Despite such convictions, he proposes a business arrangement to Madame Alvarez and Aunt Alicia for Gigi to become his mistress. The women are overjoyed with the idea, but Gigi is not. Gigi tells Gaston that he is, she is not the type of girl who wants celebrity status, only to be abandoned by him one day and become someone else's mistress. Gigi wants their relationship to remain platonic, but when Gaston suddenly reveals that he loves her, she bursts into tears, upset that if he really does love her that he would want to expose her to the uncertainty of being his mistress. Gaston leaves yet again, rejected and upset. He then speaks with Honoré, who tells him that Gigi's family has always been a bit odd. Gigi sends Gaston a message, asking him to return and speak with her. When he arrives, she says that she would rather be miserable with him than without him. She agrees to accompany him in public. He buys her an expensive, a an expensive piece of jewelry. When he arrives for their evening date, he finds Gigi dressed in her finery and is entranced by her beauty. The couple go to Maxim's restaurant where Gigi acts the role of a courtesan perfectly, upsetting Gaston. After presenting her with the gift, he becomes even more concerned for Gigi because of the unrelenting attention and judgment by the other patrons. Henri delivers a crushing blow when he congratulates Gaston on his new courtesan and makes disparaging remarks about Gigi. Gaston, being too much in love with Gigi to give her this appalling life of uncertainty and social judgment, makes her leave without a word and drags her up the stairs to her apartment as she cries and asks what she has done. He leaves but stops a short distance away. Realizing the depth of his love for her, Gaston returns to her apartment and asks her grandmother for Gigi's hand in marriage. Gigi overjoyed smiles. The final sequence returns to Henri de La Chale, proudly pointing out Gaston and Gigi getting into a carriage in the Bois de Boulogne, elegant, beautiful, and happily married. And that is Gigi. Have you ever watched Gigi before, Blaine? Uh, no, this was my first exposure. I'm going to call it my first exposure as well. I took uh, one semester of French in middle school. And I know for some reason the French teacher showed us a clip of Gigi. But I couldn't tell you what the clip was or uh, what the context was. What were your first impressions of it? It's, it's fine. It's a fun little musical that is very different in tone from Bridge on the River Kwai. Yes. <laughs> So, I actually thought it was a little simplistic. The womanizing bugs me in the leads, but, you know, there's a lesson to be learned there. By the end of the film, he is no longer planning to be with multiple women. He is going to settle down. But, yeah, it is, it, you know, it's well made. If you like the musicals, it does have a number of fun musical numbers in it. So, yeah, it's, 
I don't know that I would have put it up for best picture. I mean, it is a very well-made musical, but it didn't blow me away. It's another entry from Vincent Minnelli, which I think invites comparisons with An American in Paris. Uh, How do you think it stacks up against that film? Oh, I definitely prefer this to An American in Paris. Okay. Even though there are some issues with the creepiness, they are not as pronounced. So, I mean, yeah, Gaston still sees Gigi as a little girl, but she's not a little girl anymore. So that even though I think she's a little... Leslie Caron is older than the character she plays, but she's still 27. The character she plays is of age in this movie. You know, when she says no, he'll back off and he will try to respect her wishes. It's not like, you know, some of the other films that we have been seeing. Yeah, so I I would take this over An American in Paris. It might be the best of the nominees. It's the only nominee I've seen, but it's... I would not have said it's the best of 1958. We can get to that a bit later, though, as usual. Sure. I I, I felt like this had two things over An American in Paris. I think Leslie Caron, it's, it's either she has matured as an actress or she has a part with, subs, with more substance to it or a combination of both. But I didn't care for her at all in An American in Paris, and I really liked her in this film. And I, I think it benefited musically from having music that was custom-made for it. We're in that period to where there's kind of two types of musicals, either one where the music's more custom-made for the musical, or one where you purchase or have rights to a library of music and kind of patch a musical together from it. You can do a patchwork musical and it still be highly successful. You know, I think we both agree that, if not the greatest, one of the greatest musicals of all times, Singing in the Rain, that's a patchwork musical. Yep. But here I think the custom nature of the music to the story benefits the film more. I would think so. And it's a different type of music. I mean, we don't have the, you know, the big ballet sequences that turned us off in both Singing in the Rain a little bit and in American in Paris to much more of a a degree. Here, everything is a, a lot more natural. And if anything, the fact there's a lack of vocal range in the music. Some of it is really just thinking out loud to a beat. Right. You don't have a lot of highs and lows. And I, again, yeah, I, I think Leslie Caron's character, she is far more fully realized. I mean, in an American in Paris, she was a prize to be won and not much else. Here, she is a fully realized character with wants and desires. So that helps. Louis Jordan, I knew primarily from Columbo, Season 7, Episode 2, Murder Under Glass. And he is much more likable here, which is the point. I mean, that episode of Columbo, he and Columbo have a conversation at the end where Jordan's character says, you know, Lieutenant, I've decided I don't like you. And Columbo says, you know, I was thinking the same thing. I mean, I respect your talent, but I don't like anything else about you. <laughs> you know, they he's the killer. You're supposed to dislike him so that when Columbo gets him, you go, all right. <laughs> you don't want to feel bad for him. See, my... 
my touchstone for him is from the first Swamp Thing film. Yeah, I, which I have seen, but the I've only seen it the once, and it was after I'd seen that Columbo a few times, and I've seen the Columbo since. My wife and I are working through Columbo's right now. We're up to 1990, so. Okay. I, I think special mention also has to be given to Maurice Chevalier. I know that sometimes he can be a controversial character in film, and at the point that this was made, he was definitely in his waning years. But in many ways, you could say he was one of the first stars of the musicals. And I think we get a long way with the charm we get from him as kind of the narrator and instigator here. Yeah, he does play it well. And we'll we'll talk more about him when we get to the Academy Award wins. Because he does take home an Oscar this year although not for this role. So he is good. And another one that I think is worth calling out is Hermione Gingold, who we briefly mentioned in her cameo in Around the World in 80 Days. I will always know her as Eulalie McKechnie Shin from The Music Man. Yes. Yeah, she plays Gigi's grandmother here. As usual, she plays a very stern woman on screen, but Leslie Karen said she was an absolute delight as soon as the cameras turned off. She was warm, she was funny, and she was naughty. Hmm. So, um, it, It's also worth calling out that Ava Gabor has a small part in this. She's Gaston's courtesan that, we, that he's in a relationship with at the start of the film. And I, I just, I, I find it interesting, both of the Gabor sisters... I've seen both of them this year in films from this period, and they've essentially played the exact same role. Because Zsa Zsa has the same role in um, the uh, Jose Ferrar Moulin Rouge. So, Okay. I can see that, because frankly, the Gabors, I haven't seen them in anything where they impress me with their acting talent. That could be my limited exposure to them. But yeah, they do seem to be attractive to roles that are more about how pretty they are. So you touched on it briefly. What did you think about the sexual politics in this film? Because if there's a hot button or controversial aspect to the film, I think it would be that. I am okay with it in the sense that it's probably an accurate depiction of the high society that they had at the time. Courtesan was a role. It was a job. And in the days... Uh, you know, days of yore when the upper class had to marry within the upper class and not beneath them, courtesans were common. It, it was common enough. It's you know a major part of Dune by Frank Herbert because that's the way the upper class worked. So you know the marriage was a proper marriage would be business arrangement, whereas the courtesan would be the more genuine relationship. So if anything, the most unrealistic part is the fact that Gaston and Gigi end up actually married instead of separated. And when we look at the author of the novella, who wrote under a single name pseudonym and frequently wrote about courtesans, according to what I looked up, I suspect that she was writing from personal experience to some degree. I think she was a part of that world. And it might have been risque enough, that's why she used that pseudonym to publish under. Yeah, I'm not happy that our lead character is 
a womanizer at the beginning, and especially when I'm not impressed that, you know, he and his uncle are saying, oh, you know, why did that marriage end? Oh, yeah, she found out about one of my affairs. Oh, well. Right. When I found out that Madame Alvarez, played by Hermione Gingold, dumped Honoré Lachal because he had an affair, I was like, okay, good for you. And then they're talking later, and as the conversation develops, you find out, oh, yeah, there were multiple affairs. That one was just the last straw. And I, I would have preferred it if it was, you know, if she ended the relationship on the first affair and not on the third or fourth or fifth or just the most public. Yeah, there are issues, but they're not glorified. By the end, because the character settles down to a committed relationship with Gigi, it's like, okay, well, these guys have matured as well. They have recognized that that lifestyle is not going to lead them to happiness, and monogamy will. And because it lands there, I am more forgiving of the sexual politics in Gigi than I would be in other films. No, I I, I agree. I think... I've had several thoughts on it. One, I think in today's Western society, we are quick to liken such a relationship to prostitution, and you're right. Within the social mores of the time, it was something completely different, right? And also, Gigi's dripping with agency in this. She's very forthright about what kind of a relationship she wants. And with who, and even when she concedes and agrees to be his courtesan, it's still very much her decision. It's not a decision that's being forced on her, unless you might want to argue that it's being forced on her by society. But I also think it works because the pressure is is societal, and you see that society expressed by the elder females in her family circle. Gaston, you know, he argues and he bickers with her, but he's never really trying to force her into anything. It's, you know, her aunt Alicia and more reluctantly her her grandmother who are kind of pushing that societal pressure on her. Yeah, it is coming in from the outside for sure. And like you said, Gigi has agency, and even when she chooses to be with them, she says, yeah, this is a miserable future, but I only see miserable futures ahead of me, and this is the least miserable. Saying she'd rather be miserable with him than miserable without him. That Those appear to be her choices. So yeah, it is never really encouraged, and it, it just seems to be the roles that they're playing in the society that they're a part of. So, So let's move on to the nominations for the year. All right, so the 31st Annual Awards were given at the Pantage Theater in Hollywood on April 6th, 1959, uh, hosted by Jerry Lewis, Mort Saul, Tony Randall, Bob Hope, David Niven, and Laurence Olivier. So we have, we actually have a, a bit of a record being set tonight that we'll talk about after we go through all the nominees and winners. So Best Picture went to Gigi. Beating out Anti-Mame, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Defiant Ones, and Separate Tables. Best Director went to Vincent Minnelli for Gigi. Beating out Richard Brooks for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Stanley Kramer for The Defiant Ones, Robert Wise for I Want to Live, and Robson for The Inn of the Sixth Happiness. 
Best Actor went to David Niven for Separate Tables, beating out Tony Curtis for The Defiant Ones, Paul Newman for Calendar Haunt Tin Roof, Sidney Poitier for The Defiant Ones, and Spencer Tracy for The Old Man and the Sea. That's a murderer's row. Mm-hmm. Best Actress went to Susan Hayward for I Want to Live, beating out Deborah Kerr for Separate Tables, Shirley MacLaine for Sun Came Running, Rosalind Russell for Anti Name, and Elizabeth Taylor for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Best Supporting Actor went to Burl Ives for The Big Country, beating out Theodore Bickle for The Defiant Ones, Lee J. Cobb for The Brothers Karamazov, Arthur Kennedy for Sun Came Running, and Gig Young for Teacher's Pet. Best Supporting Actress went to Wendy Hiller for Separate Tables, Peggy Cass for Anti Mame, Martha Heyer for Some Came Running, Maureen Stapleton for Lonely Hearts, and Cara William for The Defiant Ones. Or Willi- Cara Williams, sorry. Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen went to The Defiant Ones, beating out The Goddess, Houseboat, Sheepman, and Teacher's Pet. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium went to Gigi, beating out Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, The Horse's Mouth, I Want to Live in Separate Tables. Best Foreign Language Film went to My Uncle, or Mon Oncle, from France. Beating out Arms of the Man, Big Deal on Madonna Street, The Road a Year Long, and La Venganza. Best Documentary Feature went to Wild Wilderness, beating out Antarctic Crossing, The Hidden World, and Psychiatric Nursing. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Ama Girls by Ben Sharpstein. He actually won in both documentary categories. Uh, That beat out Employees Only Journey into Spring, The Living Stone, and Overture. Best Live Action Short Subject went to The Grand Canyon and Walt Disney beating out Journey into Spring, The Kiss, Snows of Arangi, and Tears for Tumbleweed. Best Short Subject Cartoon went to Nighty Night Bugs by John W. Burton, beating out Disney's Paul Bunyan and Sydney's Family Tree by William N. Weiss. Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture went to The Old Man and the Sea and Dimitri Tiomkin, beating out The Big Country, Separate Tables, White Wilderness, and The Young Lions. Best Scoring of a Musical Picture went to Gigi, and Andre Previn, beating out The Bolshoi Ballet, Damn Yankees, Mardi Gras, and South Pacific. Best Song went to Gigi, the title song, beating out Almost in Your Arms from Houseboat, A Certain Smile from the title film, our title song from that film, To Love and Be Love from Some Came Running, and A Very Precious Love by Marjorie Morningstar. Best Sound went to South Pacific, beating out I Want to Live, a Time to Love and a Time to Die, Vertigo, and The Young Lions. Finally, that movie gets mentioned. <laughs> Best Art Direction went to Gigi, beating out Anti-Mame, Bell, Cook and Can- or Bell Book and Candle, A Certain Smile, and Vertigo. Best Costume Design, Gigi, once again won, beating out Bell Book and Candle, The Buccaneer, A Certain Smile, and Some Came Running. Best Cinematography, Black and White, Went to the Defiant Ones, beating out Desire Under the Elms, I Want to Live, Separate Tables, and The Young Lions. Best Cinematography Color went again to Gigi and Joseph Ruttenberg, beating out Anti-Mame, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Old Man in the Sea, and South Pacific. Best Film Editing went to Gigi and Adrian Fazan, beating out Anti-Mame, Cowboy, The Defiant Ones, and I Want to Live. And Best Special Effects went to Tom Thumb, beating out Torpedo Run. The... Academy Honorary Award went to Maurice Chevalier for his contributions to the world of entertainment for more than half a century. And the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Jack L. Warner. So the attentive listener may have noticed that Gigi had nine nominations and nine wins. 
so it was tied with the Defiant Ones for the most nominations. But this held the record for the largest sweep, winning all of the awards it was nominated for, for a significant number of awards. And it's going to hold that record for a few decades. So it's going to be actually a different century by the time that record is broken. You know, I was trying to think. I'm, I'm sure it's not the only sweep we've had in terms of the only film that's won everything it was nominated for. But I know you're right in terms of, in terms of you know, sweeping for that number of awards. It's it definitely set a record. It did. It actually broke the record of eight set by Gone with the Wind and tied by From Here to Eternity and On the Waterfront. So it's, and it's not going to be long before the record for nine wins is broken, but it's going to be a long time before a higher record for winning in every nomination is there. It's also notable that it's going to be a couple of decades before anything else wins Best Picture without being nominated for acting in anything. Yeah, because honestly, and I haven't seen. You know, when you were going through the nominees, I, with the exception of the Defiant Ones, which I haven't seen recently, I don't think I have seen any of the other nominees for Best Supporting Actor. Could Marie Chevalier possibly have worked in there somewhere? Maybe. When I look at Best Actor, yeah, I'm sorry, Louis Jordan in this role, is not at the caliber of any of the other performances that are there. Just between Curtis Newman, Poitier, and Tracy, that's, oh my god, how do you... (laughs) Um, I haven't seen separate tables, but, you know, mad respect to David Niven for standing out in that crowd. Yeah, that's got to be one of the most competitive awards in the history of the category. I haven't seen Auntie Maine but I'm aware of its reputation and I've seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and there's no way Leslie Caron would beat Elizabeth Taylor from that film. So I, I'm with you. It's it's a really good film, but the acting wasn't going to push it into the best picture stratosphere. Maybe as an ensemble, but there was no one standout performance. Yeah, and it's, it is a very uniform film. So all the performances are at the same caliber. So I... I think that that might be a sign of Vincent Minnelli's directing because that is not uncommon in his work to have, you know, equal level. I almost wonder if maybe so we don't have anyone standing out because the issue when one person stands out is some people think, well, it makes the others look bad. So it's possible Minnelli is reeling in the stronger performances to keep everyone on the same level. So there's no one clearly at the bottom of the pile because I've seen that with some of his other work as well. So how many Best Picture nominees from this year have you seen? Not counting Gigi, I've seen two. I haven't gotten to Defiant to the Defiant ones in any of my recent rewatch projects, so it's been probably at least a decade since I've seen the Defiant ones. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, I, Gigi's the only one I've seen. So like I've said, of the nominees, I'm not going to judge. How would you have picked just among the nominees to begin with? Just among the nominees, probably Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Okay. 
interestingly, before we get to the, the breakdown year by year, uh, if we look at the Golden Globe Awards, because the 16th annual Golden Globes are the same year, they actually split their best picture into three categories this year. Wow. So their best picture drama went to the Defiant Ones, beating Cat on the Hot Tin Roof, Home Before Dark, I Want to Live in Separate Tables. Their best film comedy went to Auntie Mame, beating Bell, Book, and Candle, Indiscreet Me and the Colonel and the Perfect Furlough. And their best picture musical went to Gigi, beating out Damn Yankee, South Pacific, and Tom Thumb. Best actor drama went to David Niven, almost identical nominees. Swap out Paul Newman for a posthumous nomination for Robert Donat for the end of the sixth happiness, and it's the same. Tony Curtis, Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy. Best actress drama went to Susan Hayward for I Want to Live. So a lot of the same decisions coming here. Mm-hmm. Hayward beat out Ingrid Bergman for The End of the Sixth Happiness, Deborah Care for Separate Tables, Shirley MacLaine for Some Kane Running, and Gene Simmons for Home Before Dark. Best Actor Comedy or Musical went to Danny Kaye for Me and the Colonel. Here, Maurice Chevalier and Louis Jordan were both nominated, possibly because they separated the drama and the musicals. And then the other two nominations were Clark Gable for Teacher's Pet and Cary Grant for Indiscreet. Best Actress went to Rosalind Russell for Auntie Mame in the Comedy or Musical category. Beating out Ingrid Bergman for Indiscreet, or Indiscreet, Leslie Caron for Gigi, Doris Day for The Tunnel of Love, and Mitzi Gaynor for South Pacific. Best Supporting Actor went to Burr Lives for The Big Country, beating out Harry Gardino for Houseboat, David Ladd for Proud Rebel, Gig Young for Teacher's Pet, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. for Home Before Dark. Some of us know Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. better as the voice of Alfred Pennyworth in the 1990s Batman animated series. Best Supporting Actress went to Hermione Gingold for Gigi, and she beat out... Wow, okay. Yeah, she beat out Peggy Cass for Anti-Name, Wendy Hiller for Separate Tables, Maureen Stapleton for Lonely Hearts, and Cara Williams for The Defiant Ones. And that, I don't know, like her... Hermione Gingold, she played to a type, but she played it really well. So yeah, she didn't really stand out. But I also can't point to any point where I say her performance could have been better. So I can see that, but I don't know if I would have put her at number one that year, not having seen the other nominees. Best Director went to Vincent Minnelli for Gigi, beating out Richard Brooks for Cat on the Haunt Tin Roof, Stanley Kramer for The Defiant Ones, Dilbert Mann for Separate Tables, and Robert Wise for I Want to Live. Best Foreign Language Film. This was a three-way tie. Das Manchin Rosemarie. Lovive. And The Year-Long Road from West Germany, France, and Yugoslavia. Best English Language Foreign Film was A Night to Remember. So that's a British film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best Film Promoting International Understanding was The End of the Sixth Happiness. Beating out The Defiant Ones, Mean the Colonel, A Time to Love and A Time to Die, and The Young Lions. The Samuel Goldwyn International Film Award went to Do Ankin Barahaf. That's a Hindi language film. The Henrietta Award for the World Film Favorites went to Rock Hudson and Deborah Kerr. Now, the television. So, best TV show, there were five of them. The Ann Southern Show, Letter to Loretta, The Red Skelton Show, Toast of the Town, and Tonight. So, Tonight has stayed on the air for years. The current incarnation is The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. So, I've heard of two of those. Right, well... The Red Skeleton shows stayed on until, like, 
the seventies, I think, but those are the only two that I've heard of. Oh, you know, I think we both heard of three toast of the town. Now that I look into it a little bit would become the Ed Sullivan show. Oh, okay. So yeah, I think we've heard of it in that incarnation. One of those things like, Oh, the daily show existed before John Stewart. Right. Promising newcomer male. They're still have the three winners as they've had in the past, but now they also have three nominees. So the winners are Bradford Dillman, John Gavin, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Nominees are David Ladd, Ricky Nelson, and Ray Strickland. And most promising newcomer female, the winners are Linda Crystal, Susan Conner, and Tina Louise, who would go on before uh, or to play Ginger Grant on Gilligan's Island. Okay. Nominees are Joanna Barnes, Carolyn Lee, and France Nguyen. Achievement in television went to Red Skelton. And the special awards, David Ladd for Best Juvenile Actor and Shirley MacLaine for Most Versatile Actress. And the Cecil B. DeMille Award went to Maurice Chevalier. So I'm not trying to take anything away from Shirley MacLaine because I think she's a great actress. But is that an award they just invented? I don't remember a Most Versatile Award in previous ceremonies. No, it's a special award. So this is whatever they think is worth recognition if i flip back to the previous so that was the 16th uh-huh they have special achievement awards but they don't say what they're for in the 15th okay so we don't okay. know if it's awarded for versatility and jumping ahead to the 17th yeah the 17th does not we'll get into it in more detail next month but they don't have a for the most versatile Okay. They do have reasons for them, but versatility is not one of them. Okay. So, yeah, I think they might just be the Special Achievement Award. It's like, you know what? That person needs recognized for this reason. So we'll invent a category that's adaptable to whatever we want to give the award for that year. Got it. Okay. So there seems to be a fair amount of agreement between the Golden Globes and the Oscars once you take into account that the Golden Globes split things into multiple genres which I think is an approach that has a lot of merit. Right. Because your expectations for drama versus musical versus comedy are different. And when you don't separate them, the performances in dramas are more likely to take home the awards because they're more likely to have a wider range, I think, of emotions for the people to portray. So now, shall we go to how history regards these? Yes. Okay, so let's start with the IMDb. So again, if we look at everything with at least a thousand votes, that is of a feature film length from this year, IMDb users have rated Gigi at a 6.7 out of 10, which puts it number 84 on the list of films for the year. The highest rated nominee is Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, coming in at number 9 with an 8 out of 10. And the, the top five on the IMDb are H8, which I believe is a Russian film, Vertigo, We Only Live Once, which also does not appear to be English language, The Hidden Fortress, which is Japanese, it's Akira Kurosawa. Fun fact, you watch some of that and you will see shot for shot the inspiration for some sequences in Star Wars. Uh, Chalti Kangnam Gadi, which I think is another Bollywood film. Those are starting to pick up. A Touch of Evil, Directed by Orson Welles with 
Orson Welles, Charlton Heston, Janet Lee, and Joseph Kaya starring. That comes in at number six. Big Deal in Madonna Street is Italian. The Music Room looks like it might be another Indian film. And then there's Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, followed by Elevator to the Gallows and more. So IMDb users seem to have chosen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof amongst the nominees. Well, and God, somewhere Rob Kelly's going to be hollering at me. A Touch of e- a, a Touch of Evil is a great film. Well, I'll go ahead and say it. Both out of the American films that IMDb ranked higher than Gigi, I, I easily could see both either Vertigo or Touch of Evil getting the nomination over Gigi. Yeah, I can I can see that. I I know Touch of Evil only by reputation, but the reason I have stressed that yeah, Gigi might be the right choice out of the nominees is because I think failing to nominate Vertigo was a mistake. Yeah. Vertigo is my pick for the best film of 1958. As we said, IMDb puts it at number two, and it is the number one American film. You can even check H8 here and check its release dates to see. It appears to be a Yugoslavian film that doesn't even have a U.S. release date listed. So if it didn't show in L.A., it was not eligible for an Academy Award. So the highest rated eligible film on the IMDb is Vertigo. If we go to Letterboxd for 1958 and sort by average user rating, the highest rated film period is Vertigo. Touch of Evil is second, then Music Room, then Hidden Fortress, Equinox Flower, Big Deal on Madonna Street, Elevator to the Gallows, uh, Ashes and Diamonds, Mon Oncle, which the Academy Award gave for Best Foreign Language Film, shows up at number nine. There's The Ballad of Narayama, Ivan the Terrible Part 2, H8 shows up in the 12th spot. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof shows up in number 20. But of the American releases, it's third or fourth. Anti-Mame comes in right after Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. As for Gigi, it's actually come out, I don't even really know how deep, because the way Letterboxd ranks it, if you don't have a certain number of votes and you can't filter by the number of votes, Mm -hmm. it puts you at average for the year. And Gigi's score of 3.0 out of 5 is below average for the year. So Letterboxd shows... 144 results per page and or sorry 72 results per page and Gigi does not appear in the first five pages of results so I think it's safe to say IMDB or letterbox users would have also picked another film for the year and I could see that like I said Gigi is fine I wonder If part of the reason it was picked this year is in response, because it is, as we said at the beginning, so very different in tone from Bridge on the River Kwai. In terms of the emotional journey of the viewer, it is about as diametrically opposed to Bridge on the River Kwai as you can get. It's also, I think, so I haven't seen separate tables, so I can't really even speak to what the thought is about. But with the possible exception of Anti-Mane, it's the frothier, right? So. You've got The Defiant Ones, which is very definitely a statement film about racism, right? And then you've got 
cat on a hot tin roof, which depending on how you choose to interpret the subtext of that film has a strong homosexual undercurrent to it. So, you know, are you going to nominate those or the film about the vaudeville diva or, you know, the frothy period French piece? And we we see, I, I don't yet think we're in, well, no, I'm going to take that back. We, we're in that age to where the Academy has seemed to kind of bounce back and forth between extravagant period piece versus the more gritty issue piece. Yeah, they do seem to be... We're starting into the era where this year's pick is as far removed from last year's pick as we can get. So we're going to get some... It's almost like we're alternating between epics, like Bridge on the River mm-hmm. Kwai, and like next year's Best Picture winner. And then you know, these little character pieces. Because this, you can count the major characters in this on one hand. And the events of this movie are not going to change the world. Whereas Bridge on the River Kwai, you can say, oh, well, the outcome of this story can impact the outcome of the war. <laughs> right. Right. So it is a very different scope and scale. I, I, would, I would say, just because Letterboxd and IMDb kind of agreed with me, out of the ones that are nominated, I think Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is the is the must-see, probably followed by the Defiant ones. It, it's one of those great stage adaptations that doesn't lose the power that you get from the stage, but benefits from the more expansive setting and sets, if you will. Okay. Everything doesn't have to be confined to one or two rooms, and you can actually see people. It breathes a little bit more because you can see people going from room to room as opposed to it staying, you know, very set bound. And Burl Burl Ives crackles in it. I have to see the big country because I want to see what got him the nomination instead of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. But I was chuckling to myself because when they show the little headshots of all the winners on Wikipedia, the picture of Burl Ives is actually Burl Ives from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, not from the big country. Okay. In terms of my picks, like I said, I haven't seen the other nominees, but Vertigo is one of Hitchcock's most inventive films. So it's it's not one of my top picks for Hitchcock. Um, in fact, my top three Hitchcock films would be, well, there's Rear Window we've already discussed, and the North by Northwest and Psycho would round out the top three. But I would still take Vertigo over Gigi oh, yeah. any day. And he actually did some things with with Zoom to give that Vertigo effect. Because depending on how you shoot a film, you can control how the audience perceives the space. So, for example, if you were to actually go to the Friends set, it was a standing set uh, in the Warner Brothers studio tour when we took it you know, a good 10 years ago. And you'd be surprised at how small Central Perk is. So there were height limits on the extras who would sit on the tables in the background because they're a lot closer to the stars than most people realize. They kind of built it to scale. So they they hired people who would fit that scale. And, you know, the cameras made it look bigger than it was with forced perspective. In Vertigo, Hitchcock would use the zoom in or zoom out along with tracking. So, you know, when 
Jimmy Stewart is hit with vertigo or his fear of heights, it would appear to him as though the ground moves farther away and they get that done in camera. So it looks like the, the actual set is stretching out beneath him. It's amazing camera work. And frankly, it's something I'm, I'm a superhero fan. So when you see people going into super speed, they tend to do it one of two ways, right? You, you get the slight blur, but if it's from their perspective, they will either show the person going at regular speed with the rest of the world in slow motion, or they will, you know, the classic on Smallville, everything is slow motion and your super fast character is just less slow than the rest. I, for fun, I once wrote a Justice League script a good 10 years ago. And in that script, it called for using the Vertigo thing so that when the Flash went into super speed, you'd, you know, track and zoom so that the world seems to compress in front of him. Okay. That was, you know, stolen right from Vertigo. So yeah, again, if you're going to 1958 and watching films, even though it was only nominated in two categories and lost both nominations to Gigi, I think Vertigo is definitely on the 1958 must-see list. No, I, I, I definitely agree. I would also agree Vertigo's a better film than Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. It's just I think Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is the, is the should-have-won here out of the ones that were nominated. It also just occurred to me, other than Vertigo, like I said, I could easily see A Touch of Evil being on this list, and I think it's probably more Wells' reputation even at that time that keeps him off. But I was going to say half, but two out of five is not necessarily half, but a good percentage of the best directors for this year are former film editors for Orson Welles. Yeah, this is true, right? Down to Robert Wise, the director on Citizen Kane, or editor on Citizen Kane. And uh, Mark Robson did some of the editing on The Magnificent Ambersons. Okay, yeah. And both were directors under Val Luton, who, you know, if anybody should have gotten an honorary Oscar and didn't, I, Val Luton would have been a nice nominee. Yeah. And at the time of this recording, they recently announced that the Robert Wise director cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture is finally going to be upscaled to 4K, which is nice. Because I actually, I knew the guy who ran the special effects house that was asked to do it for DVD. And because Paramount wasn't sure what the sales were, they refused to pay to let him produce all those visual effects, even at Blu-ray quality. They had it capped at DVD. That's why that has never come out on Blu-ray, because doing it in a higher quality meant redoing the whole project from scratch. So, you know, that is nice to see, especially since the original release of Star Trek The Ocean Picture was not the cut Robert Wise wanted us to see. There were schedule issues. He wanted more time to work on it, but missing the release date would have meant paying contract violation penalties to the exhibitors. So Paramount said, no, get something we can release by this date. You know, so they notoriously long panning shot and all that footage of the ship as they're coming in. Robert Wise never wanted it to be that long. They just had all the footage and he still hadn't just gotten to that scene in the editing room to cut it down yet. So that, that is one of the cases where the one of the few cases where the director's cut of a film is shorter than the theatrical. Normally they get longer because they're being edited for length to get in more screenings. 
that's a case where he said, no, that this is too long. He wanted a tighter, faster paced film. Anyway, enough about stuff mm-hmm. not coming out in 1958. So who would you compare this to? Or who would you recommend this to? Sorry. If you're the type of person who's, who enjoys the MGM style musicals, I mean, <laughs> this is both literally and figuratively a, an MGM musical. So I, I think that's the best. I, I think that's the best crowd for this. It struck me as I was saying that, saying that that yes, the you can definitely tell a difference in style between like the MGM musicals and like uh, the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals that Fox was putting out at the same period. So if you enjoy that style of film, I, I would recommend checking it out. That's really the only audience I can. I, I can think of unless you're, you know, going through some kind of completist list. Like I want to watch all of the films of Vincent Minnelli or I want to see, you know, everything that Leslie Caron was in or something like that. I, I you know, I, I think people who enjoy films about early 20th century France is just kind of too unique of a niche to um, r- recommend based off of that. So, yeah, those are the two groups I was going to. Recommending in the fans of the musicals and people who want to see French society of the period. Because those are the two standout things. Or I guess, you know, people who want to see lethargic cats. But this cat was not naturally lethargic. It just hated Leslie Caron. So they had to drug it into submission so it didn't attack her. Because Manelli wanted this cat because he liked the look. So every time we see that cat, it has been heavily medicated and sedated to keep it from attacking the star. Which is an interesting issue and why they have animal trainers today with dedicated animals for Hollywood productions. But yeah, I would say the same. It's, it's like it didn't blow me away. I would have picked it as best picture if I were there in 1958 over what else came out that year. But it, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's, it's fine. It's just not stellar. So once again, it might sound like we're down on the films, but no, this is a good movie. It's just not upper echelon good. So, yeah, musical fans, absolutely check it out. So, shall we let people know what to watch for for next month? Well, it doesn't get much more period than the start of Anno Domini when we go back to the Roman Empire with Ben-Hur. Yes, so if you are the kind of listener who's been watching the films along with us, make sure you set aside time because Ben-Hur clocks in at 212 minutes. It's only nine minutes short of Gone with the Wind. And it is based on a novel that is in the public domain. You can grab it from Project Gutenberg. Yeah, so Ben-Hur won, nominated against Anatomy of a Murder, Diary of Anne Frank, The Nun Story, and Room at the Top which is another interesting mix when you look at what else came out that year. All right. So, yeah, come back and join us next month when we discuss Ben-Hur. And thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Please, sir, I want some more.